kindred spirits, and welcome to ModCast, the podcast of the Ellen Montgomery Institute, broadcasting from the beautiful campus of the University of Prince Edward Island. We are so glad that you've tuned in. This is ModCast Season 2, Episode 1. I am your host, Dr. Brenton Dickerson. In our quest to discover cutting-edge scholarship about the life and works of Lucy Ma Montgomery and join imaginative readers throughout the world, we welcome to the microphone our special guest, Allison McBain-Hudson. Allison is a third-year part-time PhD candidate at Dublin City University, researching material culture in the novels of Ella Montgomery. Originally from Alberta, she did her BA in English and Canadian Studies at the University of Calgary in the 1990s and then moved to Ireland in 1997. She earned an MA in Children's and Young Adult Literature from DCU in 2019 with a focus on Montgomery's unique romanticism and everyday magic. Her other interests include proofreading and editing, reading pretty much any children's literature, but especially that of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, dogs, forest walks, old houses. She is married to an Irish artist, and they live on the outskirts of Dublin with their two teenage daughters. Allison, welcome to the Modcast. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Mm, I mean, that sounds that sounds great. Living with an Irish artist and, and all the landscapes, you seem to almost live in a kind of everyday magical sounding place, right? So it, it is rather. I was just going to say there's a um, there's a medieval church just down the street for me where I took the dog for a walk this morning. So I'm definitely feeling pretty lucky to be here. Wow, there you go. We we let our cat out into the shed. That was sort of the magical adventure of our day. So <laughs> yeah, I suppose though. I live in Prince Edward Island, and so people do kind of imagine it a bit like a magical, a magical place, yeah. right? So yeah, so yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah, that's right. I think that, I think the magic uh, lies in various places, uh, maybe in us mm-hmm. uh, as well as the place. So uh, we love to talk about books here on the Modcast uh, here in season two, and I've been reading quite a lot because I'm teaching different things. I'm reading through. Uh, Ursula Le Guin, I read through her Hainish cycle, the sci-fi stuff this summer, and then now I'm reading through the Ursi cycle Mm. and quite enjoying that and and launched myself in a project of doing a Shakespeare play a month uh, because I'm missing quite a few. So I've begun uh, Richard II, so I've begun that history cycle, the the king cycle, so a royal cycle. So yeah, so that's what I am reading or two of the things that I'm reading. What about yourself? What's on your bedside table these days? Um, I'm not Shakespeare at the moment. I'm, <laughs> I'm actually not nearly as avid a reader as I'd like to be. Do you know how there's always that pile of mean, mean to be read, mean, mean to be read books like um, The Wizard of Earthsea is is still on my list. I'm, mm. I'm embarrassed to say, but um, too many books, too little time. So, for because of my thesis, I always seem to be rereading the Emily trilogy, but that's fine because I love it. Mm. Um, I'm also, I've just started Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own because it keeps being referred to by, Mm. um, I I can't even remember now, but some articles on Montgomery, you know, everything seems to refer back to needing a room of one's own for writing, especially the Emily trilogy, because she's a writer. Um, And then I recently finished this really interesting book, Edmund DeWall's The Hair with Amber Eyes, which is a nonfiction book. Um, because of the material culture connection, it's a, it's about a, 
it's sort of a family saga of this guy's family back from the 1700s until the present and their collection of um, netsuke, Japanese um, little carved animals and things. Um, so it's, it's, I'd highly recommend it. Um, and I also recently managed to get a first edition of Kilmany of the Orchard, Montgomery's oh. little novel, which I haven't read in years, so I want to get stuck into that as well. Yeah, yeah, no, that absolutely. The, yeah, no, that, the, yeah, that, that, that is kind of a nice uh, little piece that, um, that kind of fits early, early into her life. So for me, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One Own, One's Own is, it was kind of like one of the few books that I ever read that like I finished it and then I turned it over and started it again mm. right away. And so I loved it. I've been horrified by it. Um, but like, I think the instinct to connect it to the, the writer, the Montgomery is a writer, but the writing characters is kind of neat. You know, I think of Emily mm. up in the, in the garret, uh, you know, or, uh, recently did a visit to, uh, one of the local, places where Montgomery was and she had the the room uh in the manse uh that, that mm. where she was teaching that that looked out over the garden and stuff so yeah I can, mm. I can see I can see that that theme being there yeah of course the room is a metaphor in the book but yes yeah, she'll still that's pretty cool all right excellent yes uh Emily of New Moon's absolutely one of my favorites I'm I'm always finding myself returning to that book can you tell us Allison now how you go from being a Montgomery reader I can see how we tumble upon you know kill many of the orchard in a bookshop where someone gives us Anne or Emily or something but how do you go from that to writing a PhD thesis on <laughs> Montgomery's works which is 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 a, a big step in being a reader it is, yeah. It's a bit of a dream come true, although I, I never fancied myself an academic and still don't really. It's like imposter syndrome all over the place. But um, so I was given Anne of Green Gables as many kids were. I think I was about 11, perfect age, and then fell in love with it. And I, I read the entire series that summer because I had chicken pox, so I had nothing else to do. And then I was also given the Emily trilogy by my grandparents when I was a teenager. So, you know, that got me hooked and I read everything I could get my hands on. That was in the eighties where you could buy the the Bantam seal editions in the bookshop. So every time I had enough money, I go buy the next one. So I have them all now. Um, and then I took English at uh, university of Calgary. Um, and I really wanted to take children's literature because I just have always loved children's books. I don't remember a time when I didn't love my childhood books. Um, so loads of teachers in my family, I suppose there's, there's lots of influence there. But um, I couldn't take the children's literature courses at UC at the time because I wasn't in the education faculty and they just didn't have room for non-education students to take it. Mm -hmm. So I'd always thought, well, maybe someday I can do a master's in children's literature and it never sort of seemed possible until I found this program at DCU. So um, finally did that MA a few years ago and I managed to do a paper on Rilla of Ingleside for one of my classes. Um, and then I... Um, my thesis supervisor happened to be a fan of Anne of Green Gables. Now, that's about the only book that most people over here would have heard of. Right. But um, I was able to do my master's thesis on Montgomery. And then um, 
the same supervisor and and my other co-supervisor now are both fans of Montgomery and they let me do a PhD thesis on it because I was just so I found how much there how much how much rich material there was for academic study in Montgomery as well as the richness of its non-academic side if that makes any sense um you know, I had done this this master's thesis and I was kind of on the metaphysical aspects of Montgomery's novels. And then I somehow ended up going the opposite direction with the PhD and ended up focusing on the physical aspects of Montgomery's novels. And I'd always been fascinated by old things. So, you know, museums with school books and things from the late 18, early 1900s, which is about as old as it gets in Alberta. Like there's not that much old stuff there in, in the material culture sense. Um, so it all has kind of come together. Montgomery also really helped develop in me um, an eye for beauty and and that sort of everyday magic that I talk about in the, the MA thesis. Um, so really it's in my late 40s now, it's all come together and I, I get to study Montgomery. It's just perfect really awesome yeah no no yeah, absolutely that 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 does sound great and i suppose in terms of old things moving from calgary a kind of frontier city to you know dublin i think that's certainly a a step a step into the ages in in, in a sense isn't it you know yeah, it's, I'm a little jealous, I have to say, because, you know, as great as UFC is, it was founded in the 1960s. And my daughter's now going to Trinity College, which was founded in the 1590s by Queen Elizabeth I. So, yes, of course, yes. It's much older, much older. Yes, yes, yeah. That's uh, and a fairly famous university as well. So, the so let's actually dive, dive into this stuff. I, I love that metaphysical, physical kind of um contrast that you draw out there so you did your ma on i think the emily trilogy and of green gables and and i love this this idea there's really kind of two things that seem to be happening in your title so the everyday magic idea <clears throat> i mean i think the phrase mundane magic would become kind of a funny phrase right so like everyday magic and then unique romanticism so uh, what, can, what how do those two fit together <laughs> what, what do they mean what do you mean by these <laughs> things what is everyday magic and and then what do you see uh, montgomery uh and, and her unique romanticism meaning for us you yeah. Right. Well, to start with the unique romanticism part, I ended up, well, I, I'd started with the idea of everyday magic, and that's what I really wanted to explore. But in order to do that, I had to figure out what that meant. It's pretty hard to define, but um, once I started researching her, I realized, you know, she was obviously very in influenced by the romantic poets. And, you know, she she talks about reading Wordsworth and Blake and Shelley and all of those. Um, but I found as I went along doing the thesis that she developed her own version of romanticism. So her writing is very much in the romantic tradition. She shunned modernism. Mm -hmm. um, there's a great passage in Emily where Mr. Carpenter is talking about pigsties and, and um, it's all very, it's very clear what she thinks about modernism, but um, her romanticism it's really displayed well by Anne of Green Gables because, um, you know, she was inspired by the Romantic poets, but she was also inspired by the Canadian Romantic poets, the um, the Confederation poets like Bliss Carmen. 
Mm. Um, and she was also very influenced by the Gothic, um, which is a sort of a branch of romanticism. So her version of romanticism, um, I would say is, is Canadian as opposed to, you know, British or French or German. Mm. It's very um, rural because all of her novels are set in rural, pretty much all of her novels are set in rural, um, very bucolic sort of, um, you know, farmland, pastoral kind of settings, but not the, not the Wordsworth English countryside settings, but a very Canadian farmland kind of setting. And um, they're not, they're not exotic. They're very domestic. So most of her characters live on farms and, and you know, the, the focus is on the places they live, the houses that they live in are, you know, Prince Edward Island farms generally. So, um, and getting back to the unique romantic or the, um, the everyday magic, she, you know, she's such a dreamer. She's always talking about her castles in Spain and, and comparing things to great cathedrals and, you know, far away things. And eventually she learns how to appreciate what's right in front of her. And I mean, she does always, you know, oh, the white wave delight is all beautiful, but she tends to be a very romantic idealist who has to learn to, you know, write what she knows and appreciate where she's at. So, um, spoiler alert, she chooses Gilbert in the end, who's <laughs> instead of her, you know, tall, dark and handsome, romantic, ideal, sort of, someone far away it's kind of her best friend who becomes you know this real romantic ideal um so i would say that everyday magic is is that which is around us all the time it's not some far-flung exotic um magic in the harry potter sense it's the wow look how beautiful that leaf is it's it's every day and it's all around us and Montgomery and her kindred spirits, I suppose, are are the ones who can really see that. So mm. that's what I'm trying to explore. If that makes any sense. It does. It does. Actually, I think that's a good contrast. Like Harry Potter, I mean, is, you know, it's an urban fantasy in some ways, right? The magic is in, in our midst, mm. right? They walk among us. Um, but like you, you have to go through a portal. You have to, you know, you have to go up you know, through to Diagon Alley or in one way or the other, right? You have to get on the Hogwarts Express uh, in order to really see mm. the magic world. And then you're in the exotic and unfamiliar. So yeah, so the mundane kind of makes sense. Yeah, it seems to me sort of like Anne sort of magics Avonlea or she she enchants or like she makes, uh, she, cre she creates a, a new kind of Avonlea than the one that we're set uh, set up with at the beginning of Anne of Green Gables, right? Doesn't she? She kind of transforms mm. not just the people, but the whole place. I think like Anne, she you know, Green other people to see. That's right. Yeah, she awakens. Um, yeah, like I, I'm struck. I'm struck by the way you've you put it. It's certainly striking in the Emily Emily trilogy where she's always bringing out this reality uh of of the near and and the specific whereas Anne's always kind of reaching for some romantic vision or whatever but not finding it but she keeps enlightening others i think of green gables uh starts right with um mrs lind like wondering how you could live so far off the road right like the mm -hmm. so far away and then, but it seems like Green Gables somehow like Avonlea almost reorients itself around Green Gables throughout 
by because of Anne, right? Anne recenters. She mm. changes the geography. Yeah, I think I think that's a cool. Mm. I think that's a a cool way of looking at it. I took a train a few years ago to Glasgow from. I guess the train left from Birmingham, but I was some. I was in up in Chester, and so. Uh, and going through the the lands, the lakes, the mountains, the going past those places that Wordsworth was writing about and wandering through, and, mm. and it is it is kind of misty, magical, right, in its own way. Right. Yeah. And yet, I'm starting now to see because of Montgomery, you know, to me that still sounds very exotic in a way because it's you know the romantic poets. But I remember now the sound of a train whistle in the prairies in Northern Alberta is just as magical as anything you get in Wordsworth. So mm. I think Montgomery really taught me how to find that because her characters are very much grounded in their everyday reality and, and whatever magic they can find for themselves. And I love Emily, I think because that's so literal, she has the flash, yes. which is a, a magical moment for her of seeing beyond the everyday that's right in front of her. Um, yeah. 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 There's so, yeah, like, uh, Anne's much more grounded in realism in that way, right? There's not a mystical mm. otherness. There's like the prophetic realities of Emily in the trilogy, right? Is a kind of, you have, like, you have to think about like where that's coming from, right? Just saying it comes from Scottish mm. heritage doesn't, doesn't answer all the questions, right? It. Yeah. So there is a kind of, it it does tilt towards that, but Anne is you know largely, except for I guess Providence. Anne is largely uh, within the real, right? Yeah, mm. oh, I think that's lovely. I think that's a that's a great thing. Now you then you bound then from the metaphysical these these uh, uh, much more intangible questions, the questions of of um, the way our imaginations are drawn out in that way to the. Um, uh, to the physical that what you call material culture in Montgomery's novels, but no less imaginative. So tell us about this field. Material culture has a, a particular kind of meaning. I guess I think of anthropology when when I hear about it. Um, but you know that's where you can go, like go and dig up things, right, and t touch the things. Mm -hmm. So tell me about this in in novels, right? Which you know, we, I mean, we can only imaginatively reach through the novel to touch things. So tell, tell us about what material culture studies would mean for uh, in, in the literary world. Yeah, yeah it's um, it is kind of like digging stuff up within the novel. So it's like archaeology and fiction. I like to think of it as. So when I first started researching, and I realized that material culture was used almost exclusively to describe um, within anthropology or archaeology, um, so physical objects that either were created by and or used for um, humans. And they were usually used to study people groups who hadn't left any text behind. So, you know, pre-writing societies or whatever. Um, so I co-opted the term a little bit to include fictional objects. Um, and it works well for realistic novels like Montgomery because they're full of the same kind of objects that we would use in our day-to-day -day life. Now, you know, hundred and some years before. So some are more familiar than others. But I figured that the, the objects in these novels could tell us as much about the society and the people and the context and everything as real life objects could tell us about the societies from which they came. So um, for example, in the Emily trilogy, I'm focusing, one chapter I'm focusing on the houses because New Moon itself means a lot to Emily. Um, 
I focus on books in another chapter because they obviously mean a lot to her becoming a writer. Um, and there's there's a lot of portraits, like the portraits in, I think it's the um, the parlor in the spare room. Um, they reveal a lot about the, the Murray clan and things like that. Mm-hmm. So they have a lot of roles in fictional texts. They can advance the narrative. They can provide atmosphere, like the spooky portraits in the spare room. Mm-hmm. Um, they sometimes are used for symbolism, but definitely not exclusively. And they do reveal a lot about the characters. And there's a lot of great scholarship I found out there. There's a couple of articles on the Ella Montgomery Institute website by, um, I think Holly Pike has one on books and Leslie Clement has one on portraits. And those really delve into those specific objects. And I'm hoping to do a sort of a more complete close reading of the whole Emily trilogy and the significance of the objects in those. Um, So I have done some research on other aspects of material culture like Marxism and thing theory, but I am avoiding as much as possible the sort of consumerism aspects and the more abstract kind of theoretical philosophies and just focusing on um, the work of there's anthropologists like Daniel Miller who wrote a fascinating book on homes in London Hmm. um, as well as a lot of academic stuff and Ian Woodward um, who says that human lives are characterized by innumerable encounters with objects and that even the most commonplace object has the capacity to symbolize the deepest human anxieties and aspirations. So the significance of objects lies in the fact that people require objects to understand and perform aspects of selfhood and to navigate the terrain of culture more broadly. Hmm. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm going with that. Excellent. No, I, I I totally get it. And then those, uh, you so the you have the objects. They they help us visualize, situate, uh, illustrate, atmosphere, texture, all that stuff. But then those objects have like a dynamic relationship to the characters within the story, right? So like right. Uh, Jimmy, cousin Jimmy, boiling the pigs' potatoes in the big boiler. Mm-hmm. The boiler's a symbol, uh, like because it's not they're not using the heat, right? Unusually, they're, they're Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 just like traditional. It's the old traditional boiler and everything. Um, but then he has this kind of mystical reality, like this. The spirit of poetry hits him mm-hmm. when he's boiling the pig's potatoes, which I, it's not clear to me what 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 that link is. I don't know if the text tells us. It's very Jimmy like, I guess. But yeah, mm-hmm. so then Puppish there's the kind of character. That's, then. Yeah, yeah. So it, it gives us a texture. It helps us set the scene. It tells us about the culture, the family, and the particular new moon culture mm. realities and then but it also shows us this intriguing character dynamic right so boiling the p- pig's potatoes i guess the kids end up being drawn into jimmy's world so right? they sit and they eat these potatoes and listen to the poetry and yeah, it's kind of cool actually mm. yeah that's a that's a that's a really um intriguing focal point that i wouldn't have thought of um but i think instinctively i've striking that direction like imagining the worlds mm. of books as if we've found them in the sand as if they're kind of a buried civilization and we have to kind of make out what not just what the story means but what the material realities in that world means as well so is that am i getting it am i on the am i striking in the right direction i think so. i'm sure there's lots of different angles you could come at it from but yeah definitely there's and there's so much um 
tactile, physical, you know, textures and tastes and colors and sounds that come through in Montgomery's novels. Mm. And so I think she's an ideal candidate to be studied through the lens of material culture because of that. Um, Like she's known for her highly descriptive prose, right? She knows known for, especially her nature descriptions. Um, And I would argue, although some material culture theorists would argue that natural objects don't count as material culture, but I am arguing that they do in the way that they, that people interact with them. Um, but she's also really good at describing objects. So um, she appeals yeah. to the reader's senses. Yeah, you actually, I, I love those scenes. So in prep, you were uh, sharing some things with me and it like it's the natural and, um, the, you know, nature and then like the stuff in the tangible tactile world. There's that combination. I think of mm. when Emily was coming to New Moon for the first time and she sees a new moon rise. And she thinks it's the most beautiful mm. thing. And then she goes into the kitchen and you have this gorgeous quotation that I think really captures a lot of the kinds of things you can imagine in such a short piece. Would you uh, read this little bit here for us uh, on the New Moon Kitchen? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's so it's so specific. Um, Emily had never seen a kitchen like this before. It had dark wooden walls and low ceiling with black rafters crossing it, from which hung hams and sides of bacon and bunches of herbs and new socks and mittens and many other things, the names and uses of which Emily could not imagine. The sanded floor was spotlessly white, but the boards had been scrubbed away through the years until the knots in them stuck away, sorry, stuck up all over in funny little bosses and in front of the stove they had sagged making a queer shallow little hollow so mm. yeah it's it's very detailed and it provides lots of information about emily's new home and it creates an atmosphere and it provides sort of context and you know we all know what mittens and hams are but we maybe have never been in a kitchen where they're hanging from the ceiling so um uh, yeah i just find it fascinating yeah, even the language she uses kind of harks at the ar- archaic. Like, so instead of saying knots, uh, the wooden knots emboss the floor, she goes back to the word bosses, like, and uses the noun instead, uh, instead of the adjective. And so I think that's, or the verb. And so I think that's a, it's, it's such a gorgeous scene. And so then how does the kind of kitchen, this this very kitchen that's so foreign to her, how does then that become like center in the books? Like what, I mean, I ask rhetorically, I guess, but like, l- let's think of a couple of ways where, where we see these material realities that they slip to the bath- background yet still have their effect. Mm, yeah, like the kitchen ends up being where Emily does her homework with Perry in the evenings. And, you know, the next day she describes, I think Montgomery describes the kitchen as being a lot less spooky because it was daylight and the the hole in the ceiling was no longer a spooky black hole. It was just the commonplace entrance to the loft. And and it just becomes kind of one of the centers of the home. But having that description at the beginning, it it just really sets the scene and and gives Emily her her sense, part, part of her sense of place, I guess. Yeah, and I think of uh, what Emily kind of stuck in the, a closet off the side of the kitchen as the ladies are gossiping um, later in the series, <laughs> and and Perry coming down without his clothes on out of the the loft. Uh, it is intriguing yeah. that they, to me, they won't eat in the kitchen. I like they they don't eat in the kitchen except I guess breakfast and snacks and stuff. But their supper they don't eat in the kitchen. They eat in the Mm. in the dining room i presume i don't mm-hmm. remember it being called that but like then 
She's punished to eat in the kitchen, yet that's where they entertained the teacher for the confrontation that Emily had was in the kitchen, not in, they didn't take her into mm. the, what, what's the, what's that room that's like the decision room where the Murrays are the always, parlor? the parlor, yeah, the parlor, I think, yeah, they're more formal sort of yeah. sitting room and the kitchen's very informal, so that's obviously what they thought of teachers, I don't know, <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah, there's yeah, a whole culture around yeah, yeah. I think there's a probably a subtle power play that I hadn't caught before. And then, of course, all the other mm. little little things uh, that, that are part of that. Um, and I love it. And so, I, yeah, I grew up in a Prince Edward Island kitchen. And so we had, we, were, we weren't very wealthy. And so we had the stove and, and everything uh, that was there. But we never had that. Uh, we had the floor that was just painted chipboard actually but then we had the hmm. we never had the hanging things except for kind of a, a little bit once a once a year but i can still see that kitchen in other places where i've wandered along the north shore here in prince Edward island so that's hmm. very vivid kind of thing okay so i get it i think i think um think i have it but uh having just emerged from a phd myself and uh or escaped from it perhaps and then yeah. <laughs> uh like people are always asking like what is it what is it that you do like what are you spending six years or whatever on like how does that you know how what's going on and and so uh the like so how do you communicate to people what it is and i think we have here uh this idea of the three-word challenge so can you describe your thesis using three words and then we may have to break up the word break down the words but but go ahead can you do this for us Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think pretty simple words too. When you when you break down however many years of work into three words, I'm not sure how effective it is, but uh, it it's a really good way of of summarizing it. So, mine are objects connect people. Mm. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, objects. Yeah, so yeah, like flesh that out a little bit. But I think I think I've got you. Well, my argument, my main argument, is that in fiction, as in real life um objects provide connection points for people so as well as all their other um roles in the text or in real life um they often provide connection points between people so like heirlooms mean a lot to people for a reason they're you know their physicality um it almost preserves the past and their connections to to ancestors you know i've got my great great grandmother's mixing bowl and of course i never met her but i have something that she used and that belonged to her and that her daughter used and her daughter who was my grandmother used and so um emily and teddy for example in the trilogy are often connected in very mystical ways but the gazing ball is an object that specifically connects them in one very sort of gothic instance um and then emily and aunt elizabeth who often clash end up being connected by objects in a lot of ways like the candles that are always used sort of Mm. tyrannically at new moon aunt elizabeth won't let anything newfangled into the house but emily learns to appreciate candles and aunt elizabeth compliments her and so it provides a point of connection so and even most fascinating for me is the way the objects can connect readers to the characters and even readers to the author so there's something about the realness of the objects in these novels that you know I don't 
necessarily know what they all are. And I've often been fascinated by something. And I think Andrew McKenzie does a great job of um, explaining a lot of these things on the, the Facebook read-along. There's a read-along right now they're doing Emily Klein's and she'll often have a, a piece on the objects that they're talking about. So the mm. um, the Mother Hubbard that Emily wears when she's locked in that cupboard, not right. locked in the cupboard, when she hides in the cupboard yeah. and then appears wearing this Mother Hubbard, she explains what that is. And so you can relate more to the text. Um, so I had the opportunity of going to Prince Edward Island um, in 2019 for the first time. It was, you know, the, the pilgrimage that all Montgomery fans want to make. Sure, sure. And I went to the library and the archivist Simon Lloyd was gracious enough to show me Montgomery's own cotton warp quilt. So mm -hmm. I didn't know exactly what a cotton warp quilt was, but you know, it's mentioned in Anne of Green Gables that right at the beginning, Mrs. Rachel Lind had knitted 16 cotton warp quilts and Montgomery herself had made one. And he showed me this massive blanket it's it's knitted out of warp being the the warp and weft of a woven thing i've since learned and um so the fact that you can you can look at a real object that is also mentioned in the fiction it's it's another point of contact sort of between the reader and the author so um, mm. you know there's lots of things that montgomery used that that still exist today the woolner jug um which is the used as the inspiration for the jug in a tangled web it's broken but it still exists you know all of these things i've just always found them fascinating so. yeah no absolutely the and and yeah i think of montgomery's own crazy crazy quilt patchwork quilt and mm -hmm. which i think is which in the, the park corner house yeah park corner the silver bush house yeah. and then the um or at least, you know, uh, uh, it's it's vivid there, just it's sitting there. And then, but also, I guess the tobacco leaf quilts that are given Anne gets mm. when she gets married, right? Uh, is or maybe when yeah. she goes off to college too. Uh, so, so these yeah. sorts of things that carry with them uh, more than just the the material reality of you know being warm or something, right? So good. Mm, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's do you have to, let's take some time for a flash round, so, shall we? Some questions from Captain Jim's parlor. Okay, so the, the rules simply right. that you've got to answer quickly. You can't give much thought. If you've, if you've given a bunch of thought, then, then we've broken the, the whole world. Okay. Is that okay. Good? All right, good. All, All right. right. Are you are you are you a morning or a night person? Morning, definitely. I start to shut down at like 10. So I'm <laughs> like up at 8 every morning. 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. That you're 10 p.m yeah okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> so 10 to 10 p.m yeah. yeah i know you have a whole family so that would be that'd be tough uh are you a like because you've moved from the canadian prairies to to ireland so are you a coffee or a tea person always coffee 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 irish tea is it's like syrup it's so strong just like you can't hack it even after 24 years i, I think of those uh the f I don't know if you have them there, but the funeral carafts, like the church teapot things mm. that like they never mm -hmm. really get cleaned because there's the belief that they get the tea tastes better after years of the, the sludginess. So, yeah, I think that yeah. somebody's going to write in and say, no, it absolutely is true. You know, it, it really is better. <laughs> Tannins or something. Yeah. Good stuff. Good no, stuff. it's just, just not good. Yeah. Ra raspberry cordial or red currant wine? Ooh. Yeah, I'd have to go for the, um, see, I prefer raspberries. I'm going to go for the raspberry cordial, although 
Wine sounds good too. <laughs> right. Just not at 10 a.m. maybe. And then, uh, so yeah. we're recording this in October, so it's a bit biased, but June's or October's? Yeah, see, I'd have to say October's right now, but I'm sure in June I'd say June, but <laughs> no, I'm definitely an autumn person. I'm in typical yes. like pumpkin spice lattes kind of person. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's right. Which is the classic material um, culture moment from the past, right? They're always drinking those pumpkin spice latte so some 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 future civilization will look back and use pumpkin spice latte to to capture you know whatever the 2010s or something yep, so that's, yeah that's good stuff good stuff now if you were to think so think of uh any book any time and place and so what book would you tell listeners that they should drop everything like Pull, pull their car over and download it on the phone or like leave their food cooking on the counter and, and, you know, not, you know, uh, um, you know, not chase after the papers that just blew off their desk. Uh, okay. So like, what should they just leave everything and just set that down and go and read? What book would that be for you? Just read right now. Well, that would have to be Emily of New Moon. Yeah. I'm not, not showing much diversity here, but definitely my favorite okay yeah uh, it's i think it's a it's a it's a stunning book i think it's a pretty astounding uh work that mm. that's happened there yeah i mean the whole trilogy is good but I, about that first yeah book. yeah i love emily klein's just her whole the writing experience but there's yeah. there's definitely a lot of, of magic about it, i believe new moon mm, good good okay what about like uh choose one uh a day at the beach, a walk in the woods, or an afternoon in the archive? I'd have to say a walk in the woods. I'm, okay. I'm a tree girl, for sure. Okay. <laughs> sure. You and Emily as well, right? So, Right. <clears throat> Do you name the trees, like, around your place? I actually don't. I just, once I get out there, it's like my brain enters this different plane, and I just sort of exist I, I don't really, I don't even think in words. So I don't, yeah, I never thought of naming the trees. It's just, there's too many, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've never, never really named the trees either, but it's just normal to Emily. She just grows up naming the trees. And so I think mm. that's where your, your idea that the natural world can be considered material culture in a particular way, right? Because she's like claiming it in a sense or, or reshaping it into yeah. reality. Is that right? Yeah. Like bringing it into her world. Yeah. Yeah. And does that uh, too, but she tends to name spaces more than just like trees or something. Right. So, mm. you know, yeah, they both, they're yeah. both namers uh, for, for certain. Mm. Yeah. And so we share it, uh, Alice, we share a bit of uh, enjoyment of some other books and that were mentioned in your bio there, but like, what, tell us a, like some of the things that you you like outside of of Montgomery. You mentioned C.S. Lewis. Are you a Narnia reader? Definitely. I I didn't actually discover the Narnia books until I was an adult, which okay. is a terrible shame. But I've, I'm making up for lost time. Um, I it, I think it's a lot in common with Montgomery as well. A lot of the sort of magical things. Now some of them veer more into the fantastical, like um, Tolkien's um, work and well, any of C.S. Lewis's writing, fiction or nonfiction or whatever, but I, I would definitely know the Narnia series the best. And I love his cosmic trilogy. Um, mm. You know, talking about naming familiar things, 
he manages somehow to name completely unfamiliar objects and still make them believable. You know, I think it's Paralandra where he's yeah. describing the the trees at the the bubbles on them that are edible and yeah. just he's the most incredible writer. So yeah, yeah. The bu- the bubble tree showers on Paralandra on Venus, and then mm. I I would love to spend way longer in the in the sort of the the fur, the furry tribe that he joins in out of the silent planet where mm. where he's with the Harasa and and just living in that like a, he's basically a fisherman at this point right so mm-hmm. i would have loved to have spent just way more time time on that and then if, but of course lewis is interested in that right he there's an addendum to the book which is a fictional letter where he talks about i think the the te- degree of temperature of the the body of their horse mm. and the way their their month and year operate. So yeah, there's a kind of intrigue intrigue mm. there. Uh, and yeah. so yeah, I've got I've got a key, keynote coming up where I'm asking the question whether C.S. Lewis and Ellen Montgomery can be kindred spirits. So that's my question because they there's no there's no cross pollinization as far as uh, they mm. haven't met one another in books or anything. So um, right. so yeah, I'm gonna I'm playing with that question. So, uh, finding that point of contact there. T- Tolkien, uh, a little different approach. Is it for you than The Hobbit into The Lord of the Rings, or did it work the other way for you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was same as Montgomery. I was given The Hobbit as a as a young teenager, I think, and strangely enough, struggled with the. Um, Lord of the Rings trilogy, I guess, because it's so detailed that I had trouble yeah. picturing um, characters and keeping track of all the names and stuff. So Peter Jackson's movies actually made that a lot easier for me. I'd normally be a real purist who'd say, oh, always the books are always better. Yeah. But in that case, they really helped me visualize those. So I, I, for a while, I was rereading them every year. I haven't done that now since I've been a bit busy with Montgomery. But yeah, um, sure. any of that fantasy, you know, sort of I'd, I'd still call it magical writing I, like I said I haven't read Ursula Le Guin's Wizard of Earthsea yet but I have a book of her short stories called um I can't remember what it's called now but it's just a collection of her short stories and they're just the most incredible beautiful language just incredible writing yeah she's, um, she's Madeline Langle yeah yeah Madeline Langle Sorry. her Meg right Madeline Langle's Meg that yeah. we meet at a wrinkle in time she's quite a striking character right very very immediate to us um do you know catherine patterson the bridge to terabithia um do you know that do you know that yeah i've only read the bridge to terabithia i haven't read anything else by her yet though. yeah yeah me basically the the book I've, i i we have kind of everything of hers and but that book keeps striking me because the girl in that book i think is a very Anne like character and kind of mm. um my, my world but that, that's an interesting one because they it's a very realistic book very much like the way that montgomery writes but they have this terabinthia this sort of narnian type world that they imagine that they cross and mm-hmm. so she kind of she transforms that world so i love that that kind kind of thing um although they have to grow up i, I think that's a too bad although it works pretty well with them yeah. it's, uh, it's sometimes too bad when uh when the kids have to grow up. You, you, you talked about, you mentioned Annie Dillard, like, do you like as a novelist or like, um, I'm thinking of her sort of more naturalist writings. Is that the word? Yeah. This, uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, just yeah, the way she describes the yeah. natural world in oh, such yeah. a detailed, um, 
spiritual way almost. She just, it's been a while since I've read her as well. Um, but oh, it's it's brilliant. I, 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 yeah. I think it's awesome. Like, it's it has the lyrical natural connection of like Aldo Leopold or Rachel Carson, that American natural tradition, but then, mm-hmm. uh, but does have that whole kind of metaphysical supernatural dimension very very spiritual Mm. i think i think you're you're right there okay so so thinking about some of the and then harry potter like is i don't know if british people are required to read it i don't don't know how that how that works there but yeah Mm -hmm. harry harry potter obviously it's hard to well for one thing they're not british and they would take take great offense oh yeah sure you're in you're in dublin right i'm in the republic of ireland yeah in the republic of ireland yeah. yeah In the British Isles, then you anyone reject it, yeah. So yeah, yeah. We we've stayed in the EU, so none of this Brexit for us. Yeah. Um, I think anybody under the age of about thirty seems to have been raised on Harry Potter. Now, I don't enjoy reading the books. This is another one of those exceptions where I actually oh. prefer the movies to the books I'm for the way sure. they're written. But um, but yeah, definitely. I love the the stories are just incredible and the way she tied together a lot of ancient literature and um you know language the way she uses language and stuff is brilliant um yeah so, so any, basically i'll read any children's literature like especially the time traveling kind of stuff so okay. there's a lot of british writers who would um like alison utley a traveler in time and there's all these um just things where they go seem to slip back and forth between the present and the past and that's always fascinated me as well so oh intriguing it's hard to like verisimilitude's kind of hard sometimes with with that Mm. you have to do that effect well like so it doesn't look like a macguffin right it doesn't look like you just it's just right that doesn't make sense yeah yeah that's that's super super intriguing that was the bet that tolkien and lewis had Right, they flipped a coin oh, in right. the thirties. Yeah, and and Tolkien was going to write a time travel piece, and Lewis write a space travel. Lewis, of course, dashed his off in a few months, and and Tolkien mm. were still kind of waiting for him to finish that. But we have a good portion of it. So, <laughs> yeah. and he went to Atlantis, of course, right? Like he actually was trying to retell the Atlantis myth. And anyway, so he, that's he did a lot of stuff. I don't know where he found the time to create all these languages and worlds. He, he didn't, right? Exceptional character. <laughs> I think every like they have an I saw a museum exhibit where his newspapers are where he starts doing the crossword, but then it becomes like a design. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So just super quick material culture links then. So like we get it in the realistic Mm -hmm. world. We can see how it works, operates on very uh, various levels of tangible and symbolic. Um, Some of these fantasy worlds, you know, Narnia, what are some Mm -hmm. striking material cultural things? Yeah, there's a lot of objects in, in any, once you start looking, you find them everywhere. So you've obviously got the wardrobe in Narnia, right. which is the portal to the other world, but it's an everyday object. It's just yeah. where they store the fur coats and it ends up being this magical portal. But then there's, you know, there's all sorts of other things. Um, there's the domestic objects in the beaver's home. So, oh, yeah. Which is awesome. You're, you're in an unbelievable situation. Okay, you're having tea with some beavers. But yeah. they have the same stuff that you have in your own kitchen. So it kind of, I think almost that's the way that Lewis made it more real. It's it's almost like a little British world. Um, 
but it's Narnian, so they're animals. You know, it's there's connections there, and that the connections are often made through the objects. So you've got the Lord of the Rings. You have the yeah. One Ring, which is yeah. a recognizable object, sure. but it's this massive symbol and this the whole you know point of the the trilogy. But then you've got Sam's box of salt, which is a little yeah. connection to home, and it's really important to him, and he carries it with him all through this epic journey. So there's all sorts of objects in these. Um, I've, I've recently read Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising series, and it mm. has all these Arthurian legend kind of stuff to it. So there's, you know, big, important objects and then your your everyday objects as well. And, you know, you, yeah, they're, they're absolutely everywhere once you start looking for them. Uh, brilliant. Yeah, I know that that totally that that does make sense. Like I, I, I get. And so when you say that, like I, you really mean kind of everything and certainly in Portal fantasy the portal is almost always something uh, mundane or t- like i think Familiar. of yeah i think of the the way that they travel um transport in harry potter it has to be something like so mundane that no one would notice it or people would go around just like mm. you know uh transporting right magically by touching the old boot or something like that right so right yeah accidentally yeah. ends up at hogwarts yeah that's right yeah, actually yeah that's right or france or something so this is the this is definitely the um yeah no it has to be it has to be kind of every day it has to draw us in and i think of I, I have a bit of a love for the Beaver's House in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. I think mm. the book's a, a, a bit sort of self-conscious as his first children's book, and has, the brilliance lies other than kind of the immediacy sometimes. But the in that one, I remember Mrs. Beaver's, so they're fleeing from tyranny, and Mrs. Beaver wants to bring <laughs> her a sewing machine, and and some scholar or other has, has tagged that as sort of a sexist moment or something. But I think of like... Um, my my grandmother had one of those washboards, the glass mm-hmm. washboards, and she just she would not get it and um, give it up. Like she just and she would scrub mm-hmm. uh, collars, basically. Call uh, she would scrub mm-hmm. her collars uh, in her household collars with this this one washboard, and she said like multiple times to us, "If the house was on fire, the one thing that I would take uh, is this." Mm-hmm is this washboard and i think that's right um, i i think i don't think this is um, mrs beaver being fussy i think this is mr mrs beaver uh rooting to really important things things that are, are really dynamic and essential so yeah so I'm, I'm a bit yeah, of a practical things but also maybe a bit um emotional as well she just yeah. can't do without her sewing machine yeah but she also remembers to to bring like you know knives and food and stuff like that so, so she has this kind of other kinds of practicality there excellent yeah no i get it totally get it i'm probably going to read all my books differently now so okay well so yeah, thank sorry. you allison <laughs> yeah no that's yeah, you're correct now i have to actually reread all the books so but that, of course that's not a bad thing is it so uh by Bringing this to a close, I want to see kind of what you're doing now, like what kind of, you know, scholarly editorial project, what writerly projects you have. I mean, you're in the midst of a PhD, but what's kind of like on your mind that you're you're working on at this moment? Um, apart from the thesis, um, I'm working on a paper focusing again on the Emily trilogy, but as a Künstler Roman, which as I've recently learned, is is a branch of the buildings Roman genre. So it's mm. the story of, um, you know, the development of an artist. So Emily's growth as a writer, and I'm I'm focusing on the objects through that as well. 
Hmm. Um, and then, well, for about the past 10 years, I've had a very, very slow burning children's novel on the go, which may have to hmm. wait till after the thesis as well. Very much inspired by Montgomery and old houses and objects and things like that. Um, and then I've got um, a research trip to Ontario coming up next week, actually. Wow. Um, sort of last couple of weeks in October. So I get to go back to Ontario and travel for the first time in well over two years now. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, we've all been a bit housebound. Uh, I think what do you want to find at the uh, in the archive? What are you looking for? Yeah, I'm um, I've got a couple of days booked at the archives in the University of Guelph. Right. Um, which are familiar to all Montgomery researchers, I'm sure. Um, so I've I've asked to see sort of a representation of her library. So I think they have something like 172 of her books, um, not the ones she wrote, but all the ones that she would have, have owned and read. So I want to look through those. And, um, you know, a lot of them are mentioned in her journals, but um, just to get a good sort of view of what she was reading, um her little if she made notes in the margins and that kind of thing mm. and her her scrapbooks and her journals are there as well so to actually see the physical copies of these things you know i read the the selected journals but to see the originals um mm. i think is is very valuable and then i'll also be going to the leaskdale manse where she lived and wrote for several years and is in is a museum and houses a lot of the objects that either objects that she actually used or ones from the same period that um that she would have used so it's partly you know academic research but also just partly all about that connection again just being in her world and just the idea of being able to see things that she used and and read and wrote um is, yeah. is fascinating so i'm not entirely sure what will come out of it but um well but that's yeah, that's, the, anyway. that's the beauty of archives and museums right is the discovery right mm. the, the purity of of mm -hmm. going there i, I won a, a small grant to help get me to the marion wade center in illinois outside mm. of chicago yeah to go and look at cs lewis's archive a few years ago and I went for the same reason I was looking at the marginalia in books and it, and um, it wasn't going anywhere. It was, it was, kind, of, it was kind of like long and, and not really happening. And the hand, his handwriting is, is, is very um, difficult to read. And uh, yeah, so um, yeah, his handwriting is very difficult to read, but that's what, and Montgomery says too, her, her no her non-fair uh, copy handwriting is kind of tough to read sometimes. So, yeah, I'm, so I gave myself a, like a treat after a day and a half at the archive, and I asked to see the screw tape uh, folder, the screw mm. tape folder, which Lewis is kind of famous for. And oh, that's where I found that um, the preface to the screw tape letters where Dr. Ransom from the Space Trilogy is the translator of the screw tape letters. And so Lewis wrote a preface where he joins the fictional worlds of his science fiction and that odd and interesting screw tape letters book. And so it was wow. just kind of sitting there, a handwritten preface, uh, um, fairly easy to read at this point. He didn't have rheumatism yet and arthritis yet. And so then he, yeah, so that was kind of my, my discovery. It sort of 
launch my career. So yeah, so you never know what an archive can bring you. Mm. So yeah, but mm. I do. I love the. I love your instinct for for hunting that down. So. And it's it is thanks to a grant that I'm able to do this as well. The um, AB Canada's Russell grant. So I'm very grateful to them for making that possible. Yeah, that's um, brilliant. Yeah, and they've they've friends to stay with as well. Yeah, and they've they've actually supported Montgomery projects, which which I think is a a great. Um, mm a beautiful thing that they do right so good stuff mm. awesome well look allison thank you so much for uh talking with us today and for the work that you do thanks for having me it's been great excellent and as always folks uh thank you to allison and uh i would invite you all to check out the work of the ellen montgomery institute at ellenmontgomery.ca including interactive features, guest blogs, news about conferences and calls for papers, uh, the newest releases of our Journal of Montgomery Studies articles and essays and poetry and things like that. It's got links to digital resources and it has that beautiful online repository, Kindred Spaces.ca. Now, if you enjoyed the Modcast and would like a others to enjoy it as well please share on social media give us a rating it really helps spread the news about modcast and the institute's work and it helps us get the work out of, of scholars like allison uh, and helps us uh, share uh, the kinds of questions and invite other people into this sort of exploration now i'm your host brenton dickinson and i'm here with technical director christy mckinney Thinking about our conversation today, it's worth, I think, going to that lovely moment in Jane of Lantern Hill. Jane had been away from Lantern Hill for nine months, and now it seemed to her that she had never been away at all. She had been living here all along. It was her spirit's home. Farewell. Farewell.